Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Your week may have included 40 hours of work, but could you have gotten it all done in 32 hours? San Juan County answered that question for itself this week. We'll discuss that and the rest of the week's news with the stranger staff writer, Vivian McCall. Welcome, Vivian. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. GeekWire contributing editor, Mike Lewis. Hiya, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, actually, at this point, yeah. Yeah, 12 bells. Uh, Seattle Times editorial board member and columnist, Claudia Rowe. Hi, Claudia. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Seattle air quality, by the way, officially moderate. Can you always tell what's hazy and what's smoke anymore? I feel like I live in no. another world <laughs> no. <laughs> at all times. And uh, the, the State Fair, Evergreen State Fair, just started in Monroe. Puyallup Fair begins next week. Do we need to move our State Fairs past smoke season? Is, that, is it time to reconsider that? Oh, Claudia, you look sad. State Fair is a summer harvest, you know, the huge zucchini. It's got to be what it is. Okay. Maybe it makes the roller coaster even scarier, even spookier. (laughs) Okay. uh, You can uh, watch the show if you like because we do live stream it on YouTube and Facebook. Don't just stare at Donald Trump's mugshot. Stare at us instead. Uh, if you just search KOW Public Radio. Okay, let's begin with our first topic this week. The last captive southern resident orca died on Friday in Miami. Tokatai was one of dozens of whales herded and captured from Puget Sound in the 1970s and put on display in places like Miami Seaquarium. For years, the Lummi Nation and others called for the release of Tokatai, later called Skali Chuktanat, uh, back to the Salish Sea, back to her family, including back to the orca who is believed to be her mother, who is still alive. Earlier this year, Sequarium agreed to release her, but she didn't make it home. Whale researcher Howard Garrett with Orca Network says he's still processing the grief over Tokatai, and he knows that grief is widespread. It's massive. It's Global, it's certainly intense. All the people who cared so much and followed her so strongly for so long, they're all reeling now, and so we're going to share our grief. The former chair of the Lummi Nation, Jay Julius, says he wanted this orca to die next to family, not in a prison cell, but he said she must be feeling tremendous peace to finally be freed. An example of strength and love and resilience, uh, her story will will live on. And I think her passing opens up the door for truth-telling about us humans and our policies and allow us to ask ourselves who we've become. It is sad for us because we forever have to live with the reality of what humans put her through. We forever have to live with the reality of what humans put her through. The Lummi Nation also requested Tokatai's body be brought home. Instead, it was sent to Georgia for an autopsy, which the current chair of the Lummi Nation, Tony Hilaire, says happened without the tribe's consent. We see her as a a family member. The last thing we want to imagine or think about is what they're doing to her. Things being done to her without uh, talking to us. 
According to the Seattle Times, the owner of Miami Seaquarium says the autopsy had to happen as fast as possible to get the best answers as to why she died. The Times also reported that Tokatai's body was cut into pieces and put in 50-gallon barrels. Now her remains either will or already have been cremated. Claudia, your colleague Linda Mapes has been reporting on all of this this week. I think Linda Mapes' stories um, really bring it home. I mean, she's a fantastic writer and reporter. And um, at the risk of anthropomorphizing, morph- anthropomorphizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, at uh, a, a being that 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 isn't human, um, she did. I don't want to say humanize, but she did um, sort of help readers really feel uh, the impact of the story and. I think um, the story really shows us, you know, your your lead in says what we've become. But it, it in a sense, it shows the sort of the journey of of um, awakening, of realization. Right. In 1965, the person who captured her was hailed as a hero, given the key to the city in Seattle. Yeah. These and whales were shot at. They were considered pests. Fisher's hated him. Right. And and now he's being questioned and is saying, you know, no regrets, no regrets, which is sort of a defensive posture. No I regrets think. about him capturing Tokatai. That's what others. he's quoted as yeah. saying. Yeah. yeah. Any other reactions? You know, I think that <clears throat> I think that it's nice to see uh, the end of an era. You know, it's not, not this this specific occurrence obviously isn't nice. It's a tragedy for a lot of folks. But it's nice to see that that this is being covered in the manner that it's covered because, I mean, most people, especially I would guess young people, are kind of astonished, right, that we would go out and, and hunt and inadvertently kill and then over time kill orcas. I mean, I don't know why the aquarium needed an autopsy. I think we can all say what it died from, right, <laughs> you know, at a distance. And so I'm glad and I if the remains are returned I'd be I'd be happy about or I guess cremains are, are returned. I'd be happy about that. But there's one weird thing, and maybe I'm going to stand outside of what the normal reaction is. I am in a weird way relieved that this whale wasn't reintroduced because I think the we whale was had, was being shipped back was home being to be shipped back, being paid for oddly enough by the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, mm-hmm. who became Jim Israel, who became sort of obsessed with this particular story. And I appreciate where he's coming from. And I appreciate the desire to, to bring this orca back. But I could see in my head the, the, when we were following the, the story of the, the orca who was supporting its deceased calf. Yes. Which was like carrying like, it, it around. It was heartbreaking, yeah. right? To watch, and I just had the sense that this was going to go an orca that's been in captivity for fifty years. I mean, to Claudia's point about anthropomorphizing, uh, always a difficult radio word. The <laughs> the the idea of watching all of everyone reporting on what was going to be an extremely difficult reintroduction by anyone's estimation, including the orca experts. I'm not saying I'm happy that the that the that Tokatai died, but I am saying that that would have been excruciating. I think to watch. I mean, even if it was excruciating, it could have also been the right thing to do. I mean, like you know, you said something about humanizing. I don't even think you have to, and I think we're we're so foolish for not realizing so much earlier that you know, marine mammals like dolphins and orcas are intelligent 
beyond our understanding. They have language. They have what you would define as culture. They have complex family structures. Like they are fully conscious beings. And it's very sad that for, for such a long time we thought that it was appropriate to put them in a, a pen where they swam in circles and lived very like unfulfilling and small lives for such a kind of magnificent creature. And it still makes me sad that she never saw the water again or her family. It's very sad, though, of course, um, putting whales and dolphins in shows um, for the public to perform is what eventually turned the light on for the public about the intelligence of these creatures. Would we have recognized it anyway? Probably, eventually. But surely those kinds of exhibitions are what made people realize, hey, hey, there's something, a much more uh, complex intelligence here. I think that there is some truth to that. I think it's all, it's still wrong, I think, that we ever did it. but And it's sad that some whales had to live the lives that they did for us to just realize that maybe something other than human beings uh, has worth and intelligence and, and, and presence and importance in the world. Well, we went through this at Woodland Park Zoo with the elephants um, a few years ago, and it does, I don't know where, you know, where, how, how that issue has resolved itself, elephants and zoos versus sanctuaries, but it uh, it makes me wonder what's the next large animal to Act, be. Weirdly enough, I know a little bit about how oh, this yeah. has resolved itself because uh, a family friend uh, is a zoo interior d- architect, <laughs> and and it's not, the the whole process of even having elephants in zoos is going to go away. And it's going away kind of slowly at this point. I mean, I think that the same you could argue down the down the animal chain about you know whether or not animals should be in captivity. I'm personally I'm kind of uncomfortable with it, but but I think that this is going the same way as uh, as the orca. Yeah. Okay, well that's the first topic on KOW's week in review. And by the way, you are invited to there's a, a sort of memorial service, a celebration of uh, the Life of Skale Chaktonat Tokatai coming up on Sunday, and the public part of that ceremony is noon to 3 at Jackson Beach Park on San Juan Island, and the Lubby Nation um, in, invites you to come to that part of it. The tribal members are traveling to the University of Georgia and will drum for this orca and then bring her ashes home. And uh, I also read in the Seattle Times, castings will be made of her larger bones for skeletal displays. I don't know where those are going to be on display, but um, we will, uh, I imagine, have a reporter there this weekend and uh, continue to follow um, uh, that story and the story of other especially large animals in captivity. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW Seattle, and our second topic today has to do with crime in the city. It's something we address a lot on this show, and there was yet another mass shooting in Seattle this week, early Sunday morning, in the parking lot of Rainier Hookah Lounge in Mount Baker. Three people killed, ages 22, 30, and 32. Six people hurt, one in critical condition. One of the people killed was the sister of a staffer of King County Council member, Germai Zahalai, who said she was an innocent bystander who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is Seattle's third mass shooting this summer. And Claudia, you went to a community meeting this week. What happened there? It was, um, as you might expect, enormous um, enormous sadness, enormous criticism for the police, for the city, for the city council, 
who were blasted and blamed um, for uh, discussions about defunding the police, which didn't happen to the degree that they were discussed. However, we all know there's a you know f- many fewer officers on the force now. Um, I, I I actually think there there are a couple things going on. Um, it is it is now fairly clear that I mean the the new precinct captain down there said most of the shootings are he said uh, have a nexus of gangs. Um, so you know connected in some way. Um, in my experience. Gangs don't care all that much about police presence. They're going to do what they do. You know, um, I don't know that more police means less gang activity. In in 2008, there were many uh, kids shot in gang-related skirmishes. And I... We weren't having, you know, this police manpower problem to the same degree then. Um, And... Presumably there were there were cops on the streets and it didn't seem to matter. There were lots of kids getting killed. So, um, however, that that was the feeling at that meeting. The police were just, you know, getting blasted for not being there. But then the city council blasted for precipitating, you know, the departure of many police. Mm-hmm. I, I think also that one of the things that that I think the city should look at, at least in conjunction with Seattle Unified uh, School District and perhaps the private schools is sort of a partner in all of this is um, is the idea of after-school activities. I mean, this, there's a very few things that seem to actually see, stem in places like Baltimore and places like Chicago that seem to stem violence. And this, obviously, this is dealing specifically with youth violence, but that certainly is a component. And it certainly is, when it's unchecked there, it becomes adult violence later on. But that after-school activities tend to, it, it tends to keep people occupied, and but it also keeps people... Uh, building relationships, and they feel like that building that relationship, that sort of social network, the literal social network, not the, not the electronic version, actually goes a long way. And, and there's been quite a few studies that said this is effective, but we've de-emphasized that. We've pushed a lot of the after-school stuff to, if it's sports, to these travel teams and expensive things, right, and away from actual just school participation. And if you talk to teachers and if you talk to social workers, they all seem to think that a particularly like the spiking in, in youth violence tends to happen like 4 p.m., something like that st- statistically, that if you have people involved in the kids involved in things like this in a consistent way that is funded all the time, that has not just sports, but drama and other classes, things like that for after school, that you can actually make at least a starter effort at this that can then lead hopefully when kids are passing through that really vulnerable those vulnerable years into something that's a little more long term i'm not saying that that's the only solution here there's obviously a variety but i think that's one of the ones that seems to be a little closer in control at a city level i'd also push back you know i think whenever you have events like this these days some of the first things that people jump to is oh this is the fault of defund the police but it's the expectation that we would be living in a better city if there was an officer on every street corner to anticipate something happening. Uh, Would that be a safer city? Who is that a safer city for? Would that be a better city to live in? And who would that be a better city to live in for? You know, I I just don't think that that is necessarily the solution to what is often a social problem that is rooted in disenfranchisement and poverty and uh, just economic need. It is not a situation that you can really solve with law enforcement. 
Claudia, you talked about uh, 2008. You used the example of being a time of shootings without the police understaffing, and you're on the Seattle Times editorial board. Does the board take a position on whether more cops means a safer city? We haven't discussed it in terms of this um, most recent issue. Um, the board has certainly taken a position in terms of um, b- the the defund discussion and how damaging that turned out to be. In, in in large part because it was a discussion started without a real plan on the other side. Without right? an alternative. Right. right. Without without anything in place to sort of answer the legitimate need of, you know, more social workers, more public health workers, more um, sort of other folks who can respond to an incident. But, the you know, the discussion and the beginnings toward defunding, um, you know, were cut off before they got all the way to 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 where they to where they were aiming i mean it never ended up being a 50% cut as as was initially discussed however right. there wasn't stood up um enough of an infrastructure i think to to balance it yeah uh you know the mayor's office said this week that crime levels citywide have dipped in the first half of this year. Just a few numbers, 17% drop in all major reported crimes anyway, uh, compared to the same time last year. 13% decrease in reports of violent crime, 7% reduction in shootings. However, homicides are outpacing last year so far. Uh, Mike, I could could quote statistics all day long. Uh, The FBI's list of top 20 cities for crime, Seattle's nowhere on that list. You ask people how safe or dangerous Seattle is, and they seem to make up their own answer. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always liked to track is um, over at Seattle University, Jackie Helfgott's study that she or survey that she does every year regarding the disparity between people's perception of crime and actual crime. And you can literally overlay the data. And in some neighborhoods, (laughs) weirdly enough, some neighborhoods where crime is a little worse than normal, their people don't perceive it as such. And in the in the opposite is certainly true in neighborhoods that are relatively nice, relatively low crime. There seems to be a perception that every tent out there is somehow like a secret crime den. And I think that part of this is gets gets fed by obviously by social media. I think next door uh, is kind of notorious for people just like throwing in every little thing in the neighborhood and making people feel like like the the wolf is at the door. I think Facebook does a lot of this as well, other forms of social media. And you find that places that have lower engagement in these sort of things <laughs> tend to have a different perception of crime. Hmm. Seattle is a relatively, at least statistically, a relatively safe big city. Uh, I mean, not just from a United States standpoint, but from a worldwide standpoint. I'm not suggesting that that means that there's not problems. I'm just saying that the perception and the reality, at least statistically, don't matter. But if you see something or if you experience it personally, if your house gets broken into, you're completely recalibrated on how you see crime. And I'm sympathetic to that as well, obviously. Also, you know, Seattle as a whole, sure. But in certain pockets, say the Rainier Valley, not at all. I mean, people at this meeting on Wednesday were using the word mayhem. You know, um, people who live there. Correct. People who live there were, were saying it's mayhem. Today, I spoke with somebody who called it a war zone. You know, um, I don't know if that's overstating it, but uh, sounds like it's overstating it. But well, perhaps. But the numbers are, you know, much higher there, and they're they're much higher than they were last year, and they're much higher than they were, in, you know, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
I think if you live there, you you have the right to make that statement. That's what I mean. Exactly right. When it's personal. But I think also a lot of the people who are really saying like Seattle isn't safe anymore and Seattle is dying. They're not the ones who are living in those neighborhoods. And I think you can tell that something is funky with the perception if your political beliefs determine how safe you feel in a particular city. Like when you look at you know, the perception of Republicans and Democrats about Seattle. Like, you can't look at those numbers without taking into account that Seattle and the right-wing media is like this example of how progressive policies have gone wrong and people run amok, which is mostly based on, it's mostly for political reasons, and it's also based, like you said, on anti-homeless bias and the idea that, like, Seattle is just destined to fall apart because of the political beliefs and the policies here, which has nothing to do with reality and it has nothing to do with solving an actual problem that affects people. I don't know whether I can separate my politics and my personal biases from my perceptions. Are you are anyone here able to? I, I, I try I to. trouble. Yeah, I try. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know that necessarily whether or not we should, but but I, I get the idea. But if you look statistically nationally at cities that are run that are relatively Oklahoma City, relatively conservative city, conservative city council, and you comp- or Birmingham, Alabama, or Seattle, or Detroit, you don't you find a, a strong correlation in crime rates have gone up over the last ten years in many of these cities, whether or not it was run by a progressive city council or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've seen also a statistical drop when employment starts to go up you almost always see a correlation in drop in crime, mm. whether or not you, you're, where your politics land. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that, um, that I think the, the, depending on what media you're consuming, and that's maybe what I should have added in when I was talking about social media, you're getting this constant stream and you're constantly getting agitated that things are bad, things are getting worse, and things are a threat. And you hear people talk about it in a manner that, you would think that they were living in, in like to, to Claudia's point earlier, in, a, in an actual war zone and not in a good neighborhood, much less in, in, a bad, in, a, in a neighborhood where there's a higher crime rate. I do think, though, that where you live in town and what you experience fundamentally should shape the way you see crime. Absolutely. We, and, you know, when people come here from other places, they're shocked. I was, I was talking with somebody who came here from Georgia um, earlier in the summer from the Atlanta area. He was astounded um, at the sort of hysteria over crime here. He laughed. Yeah. Yeah. I have yeah. a friend, a friend yes. from Detroit Baltimore, say the same, same. Baltimore, the same thing. I moved Chicago, from here right. from Chicago. Yeah, and right. when people were like, it is so dangerous here, I was like, okay. And yes. also, when I lived in Chicago, I was mugged. And it didn't make me feel like the city was ultimately more dangerous. It was something that happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right, we, we do need to take a break. Uh, unfortunately, my blog about how uh, nothing happened to me yesterday at my bus stop at 2nd and Yesler over by Union Gospel Mission, just like the day before and the month before that and the month before, no one's reading my, uh, my blog about that. I'm just, my, my next door, is, next door is crushing me <laughs> in the, the competition. Okay, we're going to take a short break and come right back with more Week in Review, so don't go away. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. 
It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with my panel, the Seattle Times' Claudia Rowe, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and The Stranger's Vivian McCall. Uh, Hey, you know, our daily news podcast, Seattle Now, is coming to Fremont Abbey Arts tonight. I'm speaking on the live show, Friday, August 25th, uh, the music edition, Seattle Now Live. What is Seattle's musical identity today, and what do local musicians think about where music is going, local venues, performance? It's going to be fun tonight, 7.30 at Fremont Abbey Arts. Let's get back into the news of the week. In what may be a first in the USA, San Juan County will move its unionized government employees to a 32-hour work week, and their salaries remain the same. County Human Resources Director Angie Baird says the county couldn't afford big cost-of-living wage increases, so they found another way. In today's world, employees have more choices. We have to be creative, and how do we still entice people to want to work in public service. The county said they're not taking away any public services its workers provide now, though some departments may be open less. Isn't being open less taking away some public services? Can they get everything done? You know, the the I like the idea of 30, I, mean, I guess, you know, I joined the masses who appreciate a 32-hour work week if it actually can exist. Our listeners, were, we asked them, overwhelmingly thrilled about shrinking the work week. Not because they're avoiding work while they're listening to your show. Obviously. <laughs> but uh, but I, I do, on, on, the, on the public service level... The one thing that I would say is a caveat. Obviously, they're saying no emergency services. You know, if you're if you're doing that, you're still working a full week. Right. But I would say that that to the extent that people have to go to city or county municipal services and get something done, either they need something fixed, they need to get a permit, they need to do the variety of things that we have to do to interact with government. As long as those counters, the counters where people actually interact with the with the city, are still staffed well and consistently, mm-hmm. I think the thirty two hour work week is great. I would be thrilled for people getting that. Yeah, I think it's awesome, and I also think that like the city is at least or the county, sorry, is trying something, and they're going to evaluate it at six months, and they're going to evaluate it again when right. the contract is up for renewal, and. I mean, I think we'll we'll see whether it works or whether there are major problems with county services. Um, but there is, you know, some evidence from the UK. There hasn't been a ton of study on what this looks like because we haven't really done this in a lot of places that it could increase productivity. And maybe if people are going for those county services, maybe those county services are going to get better. They're going to pick up because people are living happier, better lives where they get to spend more time with their family. It really seems to be a, a matter of intelligent, creative scheduling and budgeting. And if if managers can make sure, as Mike says, that people are there to staff the windows and be there at the normally prescribed hours, and maybe that means moving people to perhaps different days, right? It didn't say that the 32 hours have to be Monday through Friday, you know, you know like maybe you work Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday or whatever, you know, move, move people around. I, I think it's... I don't think this is terribly controversial. I think it's going to work. I think everybody knows that there's a lot of wasted time in the 40-hour work week. I think people know that. Well, and and the 40-hour work week is tradition, but it's not sacrosanct. I mean, this is not something. We do it because this is what we've always done. But whenever anyone steps outside and thinks of something new, working from home would be a great example. Exactly. Turns out it actually works. I was talking a couple of years ago with the chief people officer, I think that's the title, of Expedia. 
And she said one of the things that was very interesting about working from home, because Expedia has always been a company that has had people working from a variety of places all over the planet. They're really into people being in different places. They are. That <laughs> seems to be sort of a bottom line yes. for them. And, and she said what, really what companies are also facing is this ability to track what is successful work and what isn't when you don't have people in there, because a lot of people were – liked and promoted based on personality but less on work quality, right? Mm-hmm. And people sometimes didn't get that if they were not as friendly, you know, in the workplace, but their work quality was good. Yeah. I think the tracking mechanism in San Juan County is going to be very interesting on how they assess whether or not people what is productivity and how do you track it. I was yeah. talking with a um a county worker from San Juan County earlier, um, who is really excited about this and and thinks that they're gonna be on, you know, the leading edge of something much broader, um, sort of a, a sweeping new trend. I I think that's on the money. I think that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I, this echoes what we we asked our listeners what they thought of this. As I said, overwhelmingly uh, happy. Daniel in Seattle says, I would definitely be more efficient with a four-day work week. I spend a large amount of time, at least one-fifth, not working in any given week, not due to laziness, just because there's nothing to do. Chelsea from First Hill says, I'm super excited to see this concept spreading. Most weeks, I can get my work done in 32 hours. However, beware that statistic, because if San Juan County wants to react to that by having employees work less for the same money, joy to the world, you know, if, the, if, if everyone's happy. But your county's reaction to that higher productivity might be to expect workers to get more done now that they're so productive, right, more than they were doing before. It's not like a finite amount of work necessarily, exactly. and if they can't think of any more work to do, they might get laid off. I mean, that could that the thirty-two-hour work week keep your salary is not the only reaction we might see to our higher productivity, right? Absolutely. Well, silence. I guess we'll leave it there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, mostly joy for a thirty-two-hour work week. Uh, to, and if you want to to weigh in yourself, dear listener, join our community feedback club. Just text the word club to the number 206-926-9955. Again, 206-926-9955. Text the word CLUB, and we'll send you a a text sometimes asking for your feedback, your story ideas. Okay, meanwhile, since we're talking union, those are unionized workers, no surprise, at at, uh, San Juan County um, workers. Now I want to switch to unionized workers at the Washington State Department of Children, Youth, and Families who, Claudia, have launched a no-confidence vote against their boss. Why do these workers want the governor to fire and replace a state secretary? There are a couple things going on here. Um, Recruitment and retention is a true problem among caseworkers in child protective services, and uh, caseloads are very high. So just in terms of the workload, that's one thing. Um, So that's sort of a a morale issue. Um, and that's chronic. I mean, that that was true before the creation of DCYF in 2019. It, it was true when Child Protective Services was under the Children's Administration and DSHS. The, it's a pretty rough job, right? I mean, <laughs> it's going to take a certain kind of person who wants to do that job. And it's a very, very high burn, burnout and turnover Always. Is that the fault of the boss at the top? Um, certainly the boss at the top sets a tone. Um, what the workers really wanted was for Governor Inslee to step in and force um, 
conversation, discussion with the secretary. They felt that the secretary wasn't really hearing them, wasn't really paying attention to them. And I think that is really what they want, not so much fire this person. And I don't think that that would advance their aims. It would just create more instability. And that's not going to attract new staff, right? What they want is to be heard. There's also a larger thing going on, which is a, a, a really important shift. A new law was passed that raises the bar for when you can remove children from their families and put them in foster care. That law took effect in July, and it puts a great deal more stress on the caseworker to connect families with services that we may not have at the at the levels that they need to be, similar to the defund issue without having sort of the social worker and other supports to back up the cops. Same mm-hmm. thing here. Um, there's a lot more that a caseworker needs to do to interact with a family um, and to ascertain the situation before removing a kid. Much more focus on services and family preservation. Wherever you fall on whether that's right or wrong, this is a huge shift. And, you know, the the metaphor of the ocean liner slowly turning is apt here. So this just took effect this summer. It's going to take a while um, to smooth out. What does I got a question for you, Claudia. What does the vote of no confidence one, it, it's still short of that. I think it's a, there's a threshold for this, right? Correct. They need to get um, 1,855 votes. And at this morning, I checked. This is an ongoing. By, by when? By Labor Day. Okay. Um, this morning, I checked, and they were at uh, 1,487. So they're still a fair bit short. They're still short. Yeah. And so if they don't get that vote of, I mean, then the boss knows <laughs> they don't have confidence, but nothing really changes, right? I mean, the, that's not that's not an edict that the boss needs to do anything different. Well, point, right? I, I agree with what you're where I think you're going. I think this was a very high risk move on right. the part of the union for this exact reason, right? Like, if you don't get the votes, then you're in a weaker position, and whether you do or you don't get the votes, and whatever the governor does, now your boss, you know. You're working for somebody who you tried to oust. That's not going to be a comfortable position. Well, and and one other quick question. The And so what is, I mean, Inslee is on the way out. Like, what's Inslee's incentive to do any disruption exactly. at this particular point? Exactly. Right. Right now, what do the problems that they are raising here in the high caseloads, what are those actually doing for the people who are receiving these services? Is it really affecting them? Are kids stuck in abusive or bad environments for longer because of that? I think it's I think it's a bit early to say. However, um, there is some data to suggest that um, near fatalities, um, so they, they track this, fatalities and near fatalities. Um, and, and I did look at a report on this earlier this summer, and it was not great. Um, it's never great, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know that it was screamingly worse than before the implementation of this law. Like I was saying, I think this is early days. And yeah, they're going to be stumbles. Um, are kids... Be, I mean, I don't think that every foster home is an abusive home by any means. I think the point of this law and this switch to keep more kids with their families is predicated on 
a lot of research that suggests mm-hmm. that removing kids, even to a good foster home, does damage to the kid. Right. Okay, we're going to, We're by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking about this no-confidence vote uh, among unionized workers at the State Department of Children, Youth, and Families. So f- just finally and briefly, Claudia, what happens next? What should our listeners uh, watch for? Is it the, the day, Labor Day deadline? Is that Sure, That's yeah. that would be the first thing to okay. look for. Do they get the votes by Labor Day? And then what does Governor Inslee do, if anything? Yeah. And uh, listeners can catch up on this by uh, a Seattle Times reporter has written about this. Jim Broner, was it? Correct. And and the editorial board uh, at, at Seattle Times. Okay, um, we're going to take another break because we've got plenty more to cover when it comes to recapping the news of this week. And we are going to be right back. We're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio and don't go away. You made it to Friday, and we are recapping the news of the week with my guests, GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, The Stranger staff writer Vivian McCall, Seattle Times editorial board member and columnist Claudia Rowe. I'm Bill Radke, and Vivian, in The Stranger, um, you covered an interesting story. What happens when a city allows a kind of symbolic speech that it wants, inclusive, welcoming diversity, And then that speech is joined by symbols the city does not want. Um, You reported on the city of Duval in East King County and its so-called pride wall or pride fence on Main Street. Will you tell us the story? Yeah, of course. And that pride wall was really like, think of a chain link fence and then ribbons that are woven through that fence. It's sort of the image of a pride, uh, like a pride flag. Mm -hmm. This all begins in 2022 when there's this local business owner who commissioned the wall from a local artist and there was no real problems. Then there was sort of this battle of flags where first there was this American flag that went up. All right. There's a POW And they say, great American flag along with the pride flag. And and, the business owner said, you know, like, Maybe people were trying to make a point there, but, like, I don't see a problem with that. Right. And then there was a POW flag that went up. Okay. And then there was a Gadsden flag, which is the don't tread on me yellow snake. You've seen it. Yes. And then finally, an appeal to heaven flag, which is a, it has a pine tree on it. It's a white flag. It's associated with uh, Christian nationalism and the Christian you know identity movement, which is kind of one of the the far-right movements that is kind of growing in power in the United States right now. And at that point, the city was like, this is this is too much. Uh, that fence was right down the street for a couple blocks from City Hall, and like some employees felt really threatened by that. So they took all the symbols down, not because they wanted to, but they were kind of in this interesting legal position, hypothetically, where that was a city-owned fence, Duval didn't have rules governing what they should really be doing with science and public art. And because it's in the public way, that means that it is protected by the First Amendment protections of speech. So hypothetically, somebody could sue if they objected to it. They didn't want to open themselves to that lawsuit. They kind of knew that this was a problem. They were going to deal with it in November. And obviously, they had to deal with it a lot sooner they have to be content neutral, whatever they do? Kind of. It's just that they didn't have rules at all. Like, it's mm. just I, they didn't have a policy. Like, Duval is, like, so many places in Washington, like a former logging town that became something else. 
and it became sort of this hippie town. And they had a really cool vibe. It's grown. You know, things have changed over time. It's become a really inclusive community. Like a lot of the trans people that I talked to for this story were saying, like, I really like living here. This is a super comfortable place to live. Nobody gives me any trouble here. It's so nice to have a small town where I can feel this way and exist in this like kind of unchallenged way. And then, you know, this happens, which was obviously upsetting to people. They're trying to work out a solution here, and they had their first public meeting about it. And there were a bunch of people who came forward. I think there were 12 speakers who had something negative to say about the Pride Wall. And a lot of times it just ended up being the association with the Pride flag going to lots of anti-trans myths specifically. That being the groomer myth, which is this conspiracy theory that gay people are trying to recruit children uh, and they are pedophiles, which is obviously not true. It's not grounded in reality. It has been around for a long time. Yeah, uh, Very similar to the other kind of uh, myths that were there that were, you know, trans people did this, trans people did that. It was a lot, a lot of that. Yet About a dozen or so, you said. About a dozen. And this is not representative of the majority of the town. It, it really isn't. At, at the hearing, were they outnumbered? Uh, there were more people who supported the flag than didn't support the flag. Yeah. And a lot of them were not queer themselves. And they just said that they thought it was a good thing for the community. There were people who stood up and said, I wasn't planning to speak tonight, but I found this so upsetting that I thought that I should speak. I think what's happening in Duval is so reflective of a, a greater problem that is happening all over the country where there are small towns that are growing and they're changing and they're becoming more inclusive. And when people want to make a statement like putting up a pride flag, that can cause friction in that community. Yeah. Yeah. Any reaction? I think that, I mean, one, I'm kind of pleased that that many people showed up uh, to defend the, the, the reality of putting a, putting a pride flag up. It's kind of nice It's because I think that these small towns are a lot more nuanced sometimes than we think they are. I mean, in terms of political views and, and sometimes a lot more welcoming than they probably get credit for being. I mean, Duval, like a lot of towns uh, in Washington state, like a lot of small towns across the United States, started off small and sort of insular. And now because it's near a major metropolitan area, it has, and also not that far from Microsoft and other big, big companies, it's changed. It's changed. I mean, you can look at the political change over the course of the last 30 years in this state, and it's very, very clear how a lot of these towns have changed while still retaining some longtime residents who didn't enjoy this change whatsoever, from property values to changing political views. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad that they're having this open discussion in Duval. It actually gives it, for, I find it, in a weird way, super encouraging that that there is this that the city is like thinking this through in a methodical way and that they are inviting a public discussion on this i think personally that when they when people have to go up in a meeting and stand up and say something in front of their peers and in front of their you know fellow residents i think that's like the example of what makes a democracy work well not work poorly so i have a question vivian yeah. um the people who stood up and spoke in support of the original pride flag ribbons being mm-hmm. there, were they also in support of the ability for anyone to put up whatever they wanted, such as these other 
um, Christian Well, right. I think the issue with like a Christian nationalist symbol and by extension the Gadsden flag is that there is a certain violent message that undercuts that. I mean, that is not a symbol that people put, you know, in down in a friendly way. Like the Christian identity movement and the, you know, far-right movements that are next to it and associated with it are dangerous. You know, it's not really the same thing. So I wouldn't really draw that equivalence. I think they were pro people being able to express themselves, but not pro being able to express views that are kind of inherently threatening to people in the community. I think one of the interesting things about the way the city is handling it is it's so different from a lot of small towns that will sort of just wash their hands of it. They'll, They'll say, we don't want anything to do with that. And then the people who are kind of the smallest group who are also a protected class in this country are left to figure it out for themselves, Mm -hmm. which puts them in a really difficult position. And the city is being, you know, really thoughtful and that it is considering this is an issue in our community and we're actually going to talk about it. And we're going to revise our policy specifically to make sure that we come up with the right solution. We're not going to do something just because we feel that way. We're not going to make a pronouncement about what we do and don't support. We're going to change city policy to really understand what we need to do moving forward. Yeah, and it's heartening. Great. We're talking about it. Yeah. We've got, we, we're get, coming toward the end of the show. Anything Again, anything listeners should know about what happens next? Duval's going to have to make a decision. Yes, Duval's going to have to make a decision. What happens next is the city <laughs> figuring out what they need to do and what's legal and really understanding how to craft the right policy. And that's going to take a few weeks. Yeah. Okay. And uh, people can check out your coverage in The Stranger. They can, yeah. In McCall or search Duval. Search Duval, The Stranger, and it will come up. Okay. Uh, Nice work. Um, So finally, uh, we're at the part of the show, the end of the show, where I... I try to find something to that that made us smile. Something that made me smile was a, a little bit of good environmental news. It's all relative, right? But the at least the Chinook salmon run through the Ballard Locks is really good right now. One of the strongest in the last decade. And here is an especially inspiring salmon. KOW reporter Joshua McNichols noticed it swimming past that viewing window at the locks, and a crowd of onlookers noticed it too. He's one with a bite in its head. There was a fish, the one that had a chunk out of its head, and it's just amazing to me how remarkable and resilient they are that they just continue to go. It's astonishing. Did you see that salmon with a bite out of its back? Yes, yes. That was brutal, huh? I felt like, like you know, I want to cheer that fish up. You know, like, <laughs> please, please continue the journey. It's, it's been, it's, it's hard. Yes, please continue your journey. We need good news right now, Mr. or Mrs. Bitten Salmon. Forgive me, I don't know your name. Wait, I'm told you might have a name. Here to tell us about you is Ballard Locks tour guide, Stacy Gilbert, joining the show. Stacy, welcome to the show. Uh, that we might have to keep this short, depending on how your your computer sounds. But uh, first of all, I understand you have a name for this maimed fish. Yeah. Well, we went through several names, but we finally chose divot. Divot. Okay. Yes. Uh, and but and is it? Do we know that this is probably a, a seal who who took a, a swipe at divot? I would say most likely it was a very fresh wound, and that's the uh, usual is Yes. Okay. So um, before I before I lose you, I uh, that's the I guess that's the bad news for Divot, except that he survived. Or he or she? Do we know he or she? 
Um, we're leaning towards she, but we don't know for sure. Okay. It uh, so, looks a little bit more like a female from what we can tell. It's a little early to tell. Okay. It's easier once they stay in fresh water. Yeah. So what a lot of people want to know is, um, well, you know what? I'm going to ask you how Divot is doing. But first, before that, because I don't know how much time I have, I want to know, I said that this year's Chinook run is one of the strongest in the last decade. Um, yes. I, why is that? And does it bode well for the future? You know, the, it's there's so many factors. It's hard to say if there's any factor that's involved, but um, hopefully it's a sign that things are getting better, that some of the reparation or restoration that we're doing on the creeks and rivers is helping. And um, uh, some of the removal of predators in the in Lake Washington that the Muckleshoot have been working on, um, and also a couple of years of cooler water out in the ocean. I really? think have all contributed. Cooler water in the ocean. I, I hadn't heard about that. So, um, all right. Well, not this so. year. Not this year. Not sorry. this year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I heard we had the best pink salmon run in, in a decade in Puget Sound as well. So finally, where is Divot right now? Do we know, <laughs> Stacy? So what I know is that Divot left the fish ladder and is on her way, assuming she's a female, to... Issaquah. Um, I talked with Issaquah Hatchery. They do expect her to make it there. And um, I I looked at her today and you know, she's already swam 1,400 miles from Alaska to here. She's mm. determined. And uh, they see they see salmon with injuries like that every year. Sure. So sure. as soon as the water gets cold, they'll be heading up the creek to the hatchery. Okay, bite or not. Finally, final question then. How can people listening to you right now, if they're curious, is this like we can go watch Divot or is Divot just going to be, um, you know, we, we farewell and, and we'll never know? So um, Divot is uh, not visible right now, but if she makes it back to the hatchery, they promise to let us know oh. and uh, maybe even post something on their website. Uh, they've seen the picture. Uh, thanks to the story. So they should know what they're looking for and let us know if she makes it. Okay. Well, that would be nice. Any fi any uh, any other reaction or question from my panel? We only got a minute and a half. You know, it's it's pretty remarkable. If I was on a really important road trip and a bear took a bite of my head, I, yes. I don't think I would keep going. Right, right. Uh, hats well, off to Divot. I, I think that in, in yeah. all seriousness, the great news uh, about this, not so much for Divot, because even if Divot makes it to the spawning ground, then Divot is dead. Yes, but but that Chinooks are what orcas feed on, and so that almost exclusively. Yes. and so a good Chinook run is very good um, for the resident population. Right. You talked about Stacy told us about removing predators, but the predators got to eat too, and we're, exactly. this is our food chain. Um, Stacy, we're we're wishing Divot the best, and thanks for jumping on the show and, and updating us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ballard Locks Tour weekend. Guide Stacy Gilbert telling you about uh, one particular feature of one of the better uh, Chinook runs in quite a while. We are right up at the end of the show, so I just have time to thank you for joining us. The Strangers staff writer Vivian McCall. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you very much for having me. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Seattle Times editorial board member and columnist Claudia Rowe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The show's produced by Kevin Kniestet. And, you know, if you're worried about the political divides in our country, we told you about Duval talking things out. How can you be a part of a solution? Well, 
take part in a, something called One Small Step from StoryCorps. We're pairing strangers with different political views to talk, not politics, just to talk about your lives. And you can sign up for that and get information at KUOW.org slash story. KUOW.org slash story. Thank you, Bernard Ouellette, running the board. I'm Bill Radke. We'll be back next week.